0: In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. So this is a pretty cool episode. With everyone stuck inside, we thought it would be a good idea if we could do our part to entertain some of those folks with a panel of D.B. Cooper experts answering questions about the case, discussing theories, and just hanging out. Now before you say, what a great idea, Darren, I do have to say that this was all Eric Ulysses' idea, and he even organized it too, so I don't get all the credit. In this episode, we are joined by a panel of D.B. Cooper experts, all of who have appeared on the show before, so you know they're legit. We've got Eric Eulis, who has a documentary coming out on the History Channel this summer. We've also got the unofficial lead forensic investigator in the case, Tom Kay. And we're also joined by the anonymous military analyst we've had on before, who will be going by Joe during this conversation to limit any confusion <laughs> that that might cause at uh, a panel of people. So enjoy this episode with my friends Eric Eulis, Tom Kay. An anonymous Joe. Let's let's go ahead and and get started. While we've got this illustrious panel here, why don't we start with some of the latest news in the Cooper Vortex um, and talk about the diatoms on the bills? Tom, can you speak to that a little bit? What what was found? Yeah, the diatoms.
1: Di- diatoms on the bills. Diatoms.
0: Okay. See, that's how little yeah, I know um... about it. I can't even pronounce it properly.
2: Well, actually, let me me interject here. It actually is diatoms, but again, this is Tom we're talking to, so it's diatoms. If it was me that found this stuff, it would be Eric. so that's the way this shit rolls.
0: (laughs) Oh, I guess so.
1: Yeah, well, they do the same thing to dinosaur names, you know. It should be diplodocus, not diplodocus, but uh, that's how it works. (laughs) Um, But uh, now, you know what? We should wait on the diatoms because it's kind of a story. You know, so why don't we kind of get the news and reviews out of the way first, and then uh, I can go into that a little bit later. It's the most, uh, it's the most exciting thing that we've had that uh, come up recently, and probably the only new information on the money find uh, ever. So uh,
0: that's
2: pretty exciting stuff. It is pretty
0: exciting stuff.
2: Well, I, you know, the interesting thing about this is uh, I'm actually going to be burying some cash up there on Tina Bar, uh, basically before May uh just for the purposes of seeing if we can actually get some diatoms on this cash because i know tom has really advocated a position whereby the diatoms couldn't work its way down through the sand and attach itself to any of the bills uh which is sort of problematic because if you look at the other alternative that doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense either so uh listen man i'm I'm of the opinion let's just bury some cash uh, uh let's just bury some cash on the beach uh Make sure that it's low enough on the beach where come June, the water, it will be actually underwater. That spot will be underwater, which, according to Tom, sounds like that's really kind of the diatom bloom season. And we'll see what happens uh, sitting underwater there for a, a week or two if uh, if any of those diatoms actually do migrate down to the bills or not. So, uh, so hey, Darren, before we hang up, make sure uh, – uh, you touched, I want to touch base with you about seeing if you can uh, give me a hundred bucks to actually bury up there. I don't want to do it with my own money. So yeah, let me know where you're burying it too. <laughs> if, if I run out of cash. Hey, question cool.
3: yeah. for, uh, and Darren, uh, if, if you need to control the time, uh, let me know. Did, did you guys find diatoms on, on the Cooper bills recently? Uh, I know you can edit this out there and if, if it's, if it's getting into the story, is that, is that how this whole thing kind of started?
1: Yeah, if we're going well, then let's just go ahead and talk about the diatoms. Yeah, so uh, you know the bills uh, have have very low scientific value in general. It's not like the tie where there's stuff all over it. You know, the tie is it was specifically very interesting because you never wash a tie. Everything right. that you could have possibly left on the plane, the tie was the one thing that actually holds particles from everywhere you've been. Uh, the money, however, is a different story. Uh, It actually doesn't have that many different things on it, especially if it was in the river and the water everything gets washed off. Well, uh, what we found out was that there were diatoms on the money. And we knew about this from the first investigation of the money, but we didn't find very big variety and it wasn't a point of focus. uh, At that time, we didn't know that much about the diatoms. Uh, Most recently, though, uh, one of the forum members, 377, who has one of the original Cooper bills wanted to know what was on it, quote unquote. And he allowed me to take samples off of his bill, which not many people would do out of your $5,000 bill. um, And look at them under the microscopes. Well, when we did that, we found this very unusual thing. We just called them hairpins at the time. They looked like microscopic, the size of a blood cell hairpins. And then when I did an elemental analysis of it, they came out to be silica. So uh, I put that information up on the forum and the forum found out that it was a particular type of diatom that forms a star shape that floats in the water and the specific species name was Formosa. Um, So that opened up a new line of investigation. And what we found from that is that the Formosa species a blooms in June and July and is basically non-existent in the winter time. So that just aspect offhand became very problematic because there's a lot of theories that Cooper buried the money or it fell out of the plane and all that. But all those theories hover around the November timeframe when the jump happened and finding these particular species of diatoms on the bill tends to point to a summer event where, bills got wet and then got buried later so uh what we've done recently is we've compared all the species found on the cooper bill to money that we had dipped in the columbia back in 2008 in uh in november and the species that we're finding in november compared to the ones on the cooper bill are completely different there's actually uh, only only one species overlaps between the two. So this gives us a good indication that there is a big difference. So we went to the literature and we found out that there's been a lot of studies on diatoms uh, on the Columbia River. Columbia River turns out to be very well studied. And they've monitored the species mix every month for a year. And in fact, there is differentiating species between the winter and summer. So we're looking at that. So, so far that is pointing to Again, a summertime immersion of the, of the bills before they were buried. And then the last thing that we're looking at is in the wintertime, there's different minerals in the water than in the summertime. So these minerals get incorporated into the glass diatoms. So diatoms, I should point out, are like an algae, but they grow a silica shell around themselves. Uh, and the shell is made of glass. So it has all the same constituents as the glass in your window pane. Wow. And incorporated into this glass is some of the impurities that are found in the water. And those impurities change summer to winter. So the the summer diatoms have a different elemental mix than the winter diatoms. And we're investigating that right now. We're finding that there is a difference between what's on the bills and what's happening in the winter. So, uh, you know, from there, there's a debate as to, you know, was the money floating around for years in the water, you know. We say at this point, no, because you'd find the winter diatom species along with the summer. The other question is that Eric had pointed out is that, uh, you know, can you get diatoms on the money while it's buried in the sand? Well, that's an interesting possibility, and I wholly promote the idea of burying some money, and let's check it out. Uh, but we know that the, the the money in the sand was kind of bricked up. It was, was solid bricks when it came out of it, and we found mm-hmm. at least one diatom species that was about half inch or more into the stack, which wouldn't make sense for a, to get in there while the bills were buried because the sand would be compressing them. And they form a stack after they get wet. They don't like to come apart, which was the problem with uh, Brian Ingram. When he found the money, they couldn't even separate them back home very easily. So that's kind of where we're at with the diatoms. You know, it's we're only midway through the research, but it's – it's giving us a very interesting time frame for when the money was in the water, which we, we think is a pretty pretty certainty at this point, and then was buried. So speculate all you want. You know, It does not look like they went straight into the ground. That, unless you can figure out a way to get diatoms through the sand. And I should mention that the sand grains look like boulders to these little fragile glass diatoms. So the, the type of diatom that we find in the summer is shaped like a star, and it would not survive getting bashed around in the sand grades..
0: Okay. Do you believe this is evidence that he survived the jump?
1: I don't think it shows. I don't think it has anything to do with him. Because this, this, this appears to show that you, this doesn't show any connection so far in my mind. I have to be specific here because we're only partway through the investigation. But this would appear that someone did not walk down the beach and bury the money. It got wet first and the bills would have had to spread out first to get the diatoms in between them. So I don't think that relates to a person at all. So I think the money again is a bigger mystery than the Cooper case itself. And every new piece of information we get points in a different direction. And this one does too.
2: Yeah. And this is, this is one of these areas. And I know Tom and I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I was down at uh, down at your place. Uh, This is one of these things that in my mind, doesn't make any sense. And the only thing that really makes sense to me, which is contrary to what Tom is saying, is that the bills actually were buried dry. And then during a couple of high water events on the Columbia River, the money spot was actually underwater for an extended period of time, several days. And that that water essentially, uh, you know, obviously migrated down through an inch or two or a foot of sand, whatever the case may happen to be, however deep down the bills are buried uh, and that that accounts for the diatoms. So in other words, I'm saying I I wouldn't be surprised if the diatoms actually migrated down through the sand to the bills. And that's what we're seeing. Part of the reason that that makes sense to me is because if you look at historical records on the Columbia River, uh, there were actually two high water events that took place between November 24th, 1971, and February 10th, 1980, when Brian Ingram found the money, just happens to be that both of those high water events occurred in a month of June. One of them was more towards, I think, the middle of June. Uh, the other one was the very end of June, could have actually gone into July, which again was when these diatoms would have been blooming. So that's just a little bit too coincidental to me. Uh, but that said, that's why I'm rolling up there, uh, taking a hundred bucks from Darren and I'm burying it in the sand. We'll just see what happens We'll see if this stuff (laughs) shows up. So yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's it. I mean, that, that'll, that'll kind of tell the story right there. The challenge though, frankly, I was, I've been thinking about this is that, you know, you know, burying it at a point, (laughs) you know, right right on the water's edge when the water's low enough, uh, so that obviously it actually is covering that spot when the, um, you know when june comes around because again i guess my understanding tom is what you're saying is that these diatoms would bloom in, in the june time frame so uh contrary to what people say there does to me it doesn't seem like there's an awful lot of movement with the river i mean occasionally you have these high water events but uh i mean i've been to tina bar multiple times and from the lowest i've ever seen it to the highest i've ever seen it this is just anecdotal and in different times of year uh, I would say there's probably a, a, a depth difference of three or four inches. <laughs> you know, that's it. You know, I, I, I personally haven't seen any dramatic swings, but, but certainly there have been. So.
1: Yeah, well, you also get the big ships coming by and rolling waves and stuff up on the shore and things like that. So yeah. I, I think that, yes, a high water mark could certainly be it. And I do agree with the whole line of investigation that you mentioned. But water gets up on the sands for various reasons, like ships. Probably all through the year.
2: Yeah, the 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 thing though is that obviously the the money find spot uh, is you know way up from the water's edge. At least it was at the time the money was buried, and and actually the time that the money was found. I mean, I think it's about 50 feet from the water's edge, and I think it's an, an elevation of you know 10, 11 feet up from the 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 mean water level there. So that you know that's a significant. <laughs> I mean, ships aren't going to have waves that kick up the, you know, they're not going to have those kind of waves. Uh, But uh, so that's why it's, you know, that's, what's intriguing, you know, given where we, that we know where the money finding spot actually was located. uh, That's sort of problematic. It's very problematic because obviously if someone advocates that the, it came down the river and it kind of lapped up on the beach and buried itself somehow, which of course I don't believe it has to be a very high water event because it was, the money was found so far, so high up the beach. I mean, you know, that, that again, that there's no other choice. So, uh, which is very, very, very limiting because there weren't many super high water events during that. You know, and was it, eight year time period, something like that.
1: Yeah. Well, these are all the interesting details that we need to look at in the case, you know, try and solve it. Uh, but the money is so, is so enigmatic. Nothing makes sense about the money. And even if, if everything we're saying is true, it still doesn't make much sense. You know, it still doesn't help us illuminate where how the hell the money got there, you know.
0: But does it point to Cooper surviving the jump?
1: Well,
2: uh, I, mean, what, what, what I don't was, see Joe a connection. Gonna, but. Joe was going to say something. You're, you're, you're going to say something, man. What, what was it you're going to interject there?
3: Oh, I was just uh, My question was um, originally I was wondering where, if it came from the Cooper money, uh, did it come from a current it must come from a current bill. And, uh, Tommy answered the question. It was, I guess it came from Mark three, seven, seven of the 300 bills, roughly that were found. How many of those are still around? I guess that are someone back to someone, some, someone back to Brian Ingram, right. And and he, yeah, he them got half
1: of, them. he got half of them from what I understand. Maybe the three oh twos two, they're saying something different now, but we understand that the insurance company, uh, got the other half and those disappeared into the, into the ozone. So oh, I um, see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now Brian's still got a few left. He's been selling them over the years. He's yeah. got about five or six left. He said, plus a bunch of fragments.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a fascinating thing, man. I mean, like, it's just a really uh, it's a really big ass mystery. Like I'm, I, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever told anybody this. I know I've told a few people this, uh, but any of you guys that, I uh, that was actually in Tina Bar uh, right before Cooper of this last November. I was on on Tina Barr taking some pictures, doing some you know research or whatever on Tina Bar, and damn near killed myself on that place. Uh, there was this log that was kind of uh, up up on the beach there, but I happened you know that I stepped on because I was climbing up the kind of the beach, which is very steep at that point because of the erosion and so forth. And uh, the the log just rolled from underneath me, and it just threw me right up and I fell right down on that log and damn near broke my, my thigh, my upper left thigh got a yeah. gigantic welt there mm. and actually did break my finger. Oh, actually geez. did break my pinky, which really, uh, still hurts. Uh, but it, yeah, it was, you know, there's, there's something about that place, man. It's just a place <laughs> of history. I was thinking, right, I, I mean, right. can you imagine if I would have like killed myself or something like that? I'm like, I'm like, like I realized that how, uh, tenuous life is at times man i mean i i felt that you know i'm, I'm six foot three 220 pounds and man i felt every freaking pound of that <laughs> as it as i fell down on that damn log is all of it centered on about you know four square inches of my leg uh but uh you'd be you know, uh you'd be earl cossey if that happened Aaron. Yeah, that's That'd the be, thing i was thinking yeah. like no shit like i, I yeah. was i mean i could have seriously stories from heard. there
3: yeah Yeah, people would be talking about a murder for hire or something.
2: Well,
1: maybe it'll be the new TV show, The Curse of Tina Barr.
2: There you go. (laughs) Dig that place up, see see what's going on there, man.
1: Yeah, we'll dig for treasure.
2: It's a fascinating place. So did you
1: see that you you saw the clay layers then in the sand when you visited Tina Barr?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, you can easily see that. You can easily see the, the, the clay layers and everything there and yeah, it's it, you know as you, as you've noted. I don't, Joe, have you ever been out there? Have you been to Tina Bar? Ever seen that place? Or? I've been close. I I couldn't uh, I couldn't get to actually
3: couldn't get to Tina Bar. I'd like to uh, on my next trip out there, but that is one place I um I think I emailed. I was talking to somebody about it and asked if I could drive there, and the answer was no. Um, and I am not familiar enough with the area that I could have found some way to kind of sneak in. So yeah. Have not been there. Been close.
2: Yeah. I mean, you you can, I mean, obviously you can drive up to the, to the property that it's on, but you know, that entails actually doing some walking as well. But uh, um, yeah, yeah. The way to, the way to go about it, obviously, is to reach out to Mr. Fazio and and, uh, see about getting permission there. I know he's been a little bit leery for a number of years, letting people, on the beach just because of the liability aspect and uh yeah uh, you know and i know that there have been people that have been injured on other properties in the area and that ultimately led to them fencing it off and kind of closing it down then eric uh Uless rolls up and almost kills himself on the beach so i, I, I mentioned <clears> nothing to them like right <laughs> i all right. mentioned nothing because I, I was afraid that you know if i mentioned something about uh you know getting in a fight with a tree log out there and getting you know. My ass whooped uh, that that uh, you know I probably wasn't going to be allowed to go back there, but uh, <laughs> but it's a it's a cool uh, it's a very cool spot and, and as the pictures of uh, show it's very very different than it was back in 1980. So it's a cool spot, definitely worth the visit.
0: I'm sorry. Do you think there's right any now. more evidence to be found there?
2: I doubt it because all the all the uh, sand that was there for the money is all gone now yeah, I mean, the beach has just been stripped away. It's just completely different. Um, you know, I estimate that the water level right now is about five or six feet below the uh, um, where the money was actually buried. So I mean, it's you know it's yeah, I mean the sand
1: the different. sandbar, you mean the sandbar is about five or six feet below where the money was buried?
2: well, the the money spot itself now is is underwater. Uh, but the water is very shallow at that point, meaning it's about two or three inches of water. So you can actually like you can walk out there in your bare feet and literally stand on the spot because, uh, again, it's only a few inches deep of water. Uh, but where the money itself actually was, um, I, again, the, the height of the sand at that point back in 1980 is probably, you know, 10 feet above the water level there. But I'm just, you know, depending upon how far down it was actually buried in the sand. And I guess, you know, obviously I'm sort of advocating a scenario whereby D.B. Cooper actually buried this stuff. Uh, You know, I I don't think it sat a couple of inches below the surface for eight years. That uh, that just doesn't make any sense. But uh, but, you know, it's again, it's very different. Very, very different.
1: We're also replenishing the beaches when they were dredging everything up and putting it on the beach. But I think once they stopped dredging, then, then the sand started eroding away. And I think that's why it, So you know, eventually became available to grinding just a couple inches below. But yeah, it was probably deeper than that. Or it was buried shallow just before a dredging event and uh, got buried deeper for a while. But yeah, it probably did not spend two, its life two inches below the surface for the nine years it was under there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Speaking of the bills, Tom, I was just thinking about this. You, you, <laughs> you've got a great story uh, about this that you're going to have to tell people. Uh, Cause I know that like my understanding is that when the money was finally divvied up, the FBI took 14 of the bills and they kind of got first dibs and then the remaining bills were split pl- were split between Brian and the insurance company. But you told me a story, uh, which I just think is great. <laughs> About the bills that the FBI sent to you to analyze. Why don't why once don't you, uh, <laughs> once you tell oh, us what happened with that? You mean
1: they were, you're talking about the return trip. You're, yeah. you're talking about,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was pretty funny. So, uh, so the the fact that the FBI even released the money to be analyzed by someone outside the FBI was just, uh, you know, probably a first uh that they would just go yeah sure yeah we'll let somebody analyze it who's not part of the fbi i'm sure that's not standard operating procedure over there so uh when we finally did get permission to uh, to look at the money uh the money was hand carried from seattle down to arizona here and then an fbi agent showed up in my driveway he was driving like a honda and I i laughed at him i said where's the big black suv <laughs> he said he said, we got them back at the at home base. <laughs> hmm. so, yeah. uh, so he came in, he pulled out these bags that had FBI evidence on them. I still have one of the bags, uh, so which was pretty cool. And I had to sign for them and everything. So when we did our analysis and we were done with them, finally, I, I called up uh, the FBI and I, I told him, I said, you know, we're ready to return the bills. And uh, they weren't going to send someone down to pick them up. So they said, well, you've got an FBI uh, office right in your hometown there, because we're near the border. We have actually have everything here. Uh, so it was behind Home Depot, and it was a nondescript building back there. I said, go back there and drop them off. So uh, I went back there, and it was interesting because you, nobody knew what this building was. Now I did. It was a kind of a you know just an average-looking fence around the place. So when you go through the gate. Behind the fence is this two inch thick wire cable running inside the U channel of this fence. So somebody tried to drive through the fence, even with a semi truck, this fence would have stopped him. And I'm going, wow, these guys are pretty serious. So, uh, I go in and they, they buzz me into the building and I'm in the main room and there's like one or two guys in this huge room with like seven or eight desks. There was like nobody there, which was which was pretty wild. I thought, you know, there's been a lot of money in this building. doesn't look like there's actually a lot of people here. So uh, yeah. they, they said, what, what you know, what are you here for? I said, I, and they didn't really know. So I said, I'm here to drop off the D.B. Cooper money. Uh, so they didn't really know what to do with it. They said, okay, here, give it to me. We're going to put it in the safe. So I had written my name and phone number on the on the folder that contained the money. And so he brought it in. He stuck it in the safe. He said, thank you. And I signed, signed off that I delivered it it was done. So I was kind of suspicious that nobody really knew that the money was in the safe. So two years later, I get a phone call, and I answer the phone hello. And the guy goes, "Uh, Mr. K, this is blah, 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 from the FBI. And I said, I bet I know why you're calling me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He said, you do. He said, why am I calling you? I said, "You've got some money in your safe, and you have no idea where it came from or why it's there." He goes, "Well, yeah, you're right." <laughs> so, uh, so I, I told him, I said, "You know, call the Seattle office, uh, talk to Agent Eng and he will, he will get it straightened out." So we both had a little bit of a laugh about it. I told him it was the DB Cooper money, and uh, and I can't th- that. that was it. Yeah. <laughs> So, if you're wondering how the cigarettes got lost, that's how it happened, right? But I guess we do have a good story on the cigarettes now, but uh, but yeah, that's how things get lost in the FBI so it's pretty funny
3: hey, Eric and Tom, uh, off that note there, there must have been hundreds of people that were uh, involved in the case through the years, even that one person that took the money from you, Tom, and put it in the safe, and then whoever called you a couple years later, do you? Do you expect someday that maybe when Larry Carr retires, that somebody's going to come out from the FBI and say, "Hey, I want to write a book. I want to talk about this. I want to. I want to bring the case back." Like, are they just really, really good at keeping secrets?
2: Well, well, Eric, you want to speak to that, should I? Um, let me think of how I can respond to that question. Um, I, I, uh. I don't think that they're, I, I, you know, I don't know how to phrase it. I I, I don't want to say that they're very good at keeping secrets. Uh, I don't think it's a matter of that, that they're really concealing an awful lot of stuff. I mean, obviously there's stuff that they can't reveal, but you know, I don't think that there's any real large conspiratorial thing going on here or anything of that nature. I'll say this. I mean, Obviously, I you know obviously i' I'm involved with uh, a history channel show that that is going to be airing uh, later this year. And uh, part of uh, you know working with the History Channel on this, we actually reached out to the FBI. And uh, I will say without getting too much into it just because I can't, I will say that the FBI, was exceptionally cooperative uh, so um, which which I found very encouraging because I was quite <laughs> frankly very disheartened with sort of the FBI's mo you know for the last several years certainly since since Tom was was granted access to the evidence in 2011 I believe was the last time. So I mean it's you know they've just been very, very uncooperative not providing really any kind of information about a number of different things that just seemed, it just, you know, I I was discouraged, frankly. And then when, of course, the case, of course, when the case was closed in 2016 and all that stuff was shipped off to Washington, DC, you know, there was this sort of this looming realization that man, you know, probably never going to get access to this stuff again. I mean, you know, we're, we're in, we're in tough shape. That said, uh, Uh, You know, they they were very cooperative, exceptionally cooperative and worked with us with respect to this particular thing. Uh, But uh, I don't know. You know, as far as Larry Carr, somebody else writing a book or something at some point seems kind of unlikely to me, but I don't know. Any additional insight, Tom, with respect to that? Well, yeah,
1: I would agree. You know, if if, uh, there needs to be some some big reveal, if you're going to write a book. And uh, everything I saw showed that the FBI tried very hard to solve this case. Uh, when we went and looked at the evidence when we were actually in in the archive, they didn't bring us down to the basement where they store everything. And I asked Larry, how much evidence is down there you know compared to what you brought up?" He said, well, I brought up all the physical evidence and all the information that does not relate to personal people. He said, you know ru- you know the, the law, Uh, binds them for not revealing people's personal information that they investigated. And I said, how many people did you investigate? He said, well, the shelves are eight foot tall and there's about a 10 foot length of shelving that holds uh, dossiers on everybody that we investigated. So they literally investigated tens of thousands of people and there's a paperwork to show it down there. Uh, So they, if there was any conspiracy theory that said they were covering this up because it was a, a government plot well nobody told the fbi that uh if larry had some information that he's holding back i i would kind of doubt that uh because he was trying to solve this case i think he's still interested in it uh the fbi is the one that didn't want to. the, the fbi doesn't want to spend their time or money on it which i agree with you know you should not spend money on old cases that are useless you should spend your money on what's going on today
2: well, and the, and the thing about Larry, too, is he just piped in. Uh, as, as Tom knows, uh, Tom's a Facebook friend of mine as well as Larry is a Facebook friend of mine and couldn't have been more than, what, four or five days ago, something like three or four days ago. I had a yeah. a post on my Facebook page which uh, referencing D.B. Cooper. And, and Larry, uh, essentially, I was inviting D.B. Cooper to come and have a drink if he happens to see the post. <laughs> I was smoking <laughs> a cigar, drinking a glass of wine, and Larry actually piped in and said something about the fact that You know, if that guy reaches out to you, basically, he'd really like to have a conversation with him. So I like to either he's playing chess at some really ultra high level here, or he genuinely has no idea who D.B. Cooper is. So, yeah.
3: Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't don't think the FBI is hiding anything. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it more as if, if there's just one spark maybe in this case and it just, it starts to snowball um, and it, it becomes more than, more than just us that are interested, and then the people in passing that maybe find it on Wikipedia. How do you get kind of the the middle the middle group that are really excited about it? And who knows, that might tease out something. Um, that's interesting. You're in touch with Larry Carr still, though. He's, he's only got to be a couple ways, a couple years away from retirement. I'm guessing. Yeah, he's that. not that old. He's not. He's not I'm, in his sixties.
1: No, he's probably in his forties.
2: Yeah, uh, and I don't want to. And just to be clear, I don't want to imply that I'm really in touch with Larry Carr. I mean, there's been a couple bits of communication that I've had with him over the last several months. Uh, but by no means uh, am I tight with Larry or anything like that. I can't call the guy or, or whatever and, and, you know, that that type of thing. So, I mean, again, this is just referring to this right, right, sort, of right. thing, sort of incident th- thing there. But I, I know, Joe, you said that at least my understanding is uh, you're in a government and in in the federal government, let's just kind of put it that way. Uh, And given that the FBI is obviously a federal department, what are your thoughts? I mean, you probably have a much better grasp of just sort of the nature of how the federal government works and and sort of the interdepartmental politics and everything else. I mean, do you think that there's any room uh, for the FBI maybe at some point uh, reopening this thing based upon your experience with, with the federal government? I'm in the army so uh and I'm not
3: I'm not on the law enforcement side or special operations so anything I've ever done has never bounced up against uh the FBI ATF or anything like that uh so really any 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 experience I have or even comment on that would would not uh it just wouldn't be be relevant I do understand the bureaucracy. I do understand the the financial side of it, and uh, I know that that without money or without pressure from somebody important, that th- this case you know w- would not be reopened and, and would not get funding. It's simple as that. With and also, Eric, I, I would say the the there, there are people out there that I think comment about the FBI and say, well, this thing's fifty years old and they, they've botched everything from 9-11 to db cooper to zodiac or whatever i don't know i don't believe that i think i think they worked hard i think uh given what the resources they had in in 1971 they they did what they could there's a few things in hindsight that if i could go back in time i would i would i would recommend they do outside of you know obviously waiting there with agents in portland but um my, my, my interaction with the FBI is, is at a very tactical level. I've, I've friends of mine that I went to college with uh, people that I, I know as friends and just people I interact with here in, in, in Washington DC at a party or something, but it, it'd be like asking um, the forward for the, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the next, what he thinks about the, the Utah Jazz's is uh, new state, uh new arena. I don't know. You know, it's just it's so far, it's so far away. I mean, maybe a mile away, but it's, it's, it's could be 10,000 miles. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. That, yeah. That makes, makes sense. sense.
3: Yeah. Okay. Makes
2: sense. Well, what speak- about you, Darren? You got to pipe in brother. You're uh, this is your thing, man.
3: Well,
0: <laughs> speaking of uh, having agents at the airport in Portland, we had a question from army of freshmen. How do you think DB Cooper got to the airport?
2: Man, who wants to take that first? I've got a very, uh, I got a pretty Eric- thorough, thorough, thorough theory, but you know, somebody else feel feel free to Eric I know you yeah you've
3: got you you definitely have a specific theory I'm I'm more general in that I think I might even read that comment on Twitter I'm not sure but uh, I was thinking about that I think it was this morning I was walking there may be the assumption out there that he he would have been seen so if he was in a taxi, or on a train, or a bus, or he walked, or he was dropped off. Somebody had to have seen him. So therefore, his entry into the airport had to be something really uh, unique. I don't think so. I think that, uh, and I've done this when I ride the bus or the train, just living in a city. I've kind of since DB Cooper. I, I've I've walked away and said to myself, okay, who did I see on that bus or that train? And I can't remember. And I think D.B. Cooper probably could have been standing or sitting right next to somebody. He may have had different color hair. He may have may have put the the, the black dye in his hair after the fact. Um, but outside of, of him having a really unique experience, say, with a cab driver or a stewardess or something, I think he could have gotten there anywhere. Uh, as a kid, it, I, was at, I was at Fenway Park, and I, I saw Stephen King, and I didn't know it. Until after the fact, when one of my friends said that's Stephen King, I, I was not a fan of his at the time. I was too young. I, I later, I became a fan later on. But I think we've probably interacted with a lot of people in our lives, and we just don't know we did it. So um, I think I think D. B. Cooper just kind of, however he got there, nobody nobody noticed him. I'd love to know. I really I really would, but I'm not I'm not married to anything specific. Uh, Eric, I think you you had something along the lines of that he might have flown in there, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I've I've considered this an awful lot, and I've factored in a, a number of things, the fact that he wasn't carrying any luggage, uh, also know that the FBI did yeoman's work in terms of looking at Portland Airport, seeing if there are cars left in the parking lot, interviewing taxi drivers, interviewing bus drivers, you know, restaurant people, that type of thing around there, and they came up empty handed all the way around. Uh, so I'm of the opinion, um that he started his day in seattle i believe he started his day in seattle uh that he caught a flight earlier that morning uh and there were several options i've I've looked into this and, and and flew to portland i think it's entirely possible that he modified his appearance in some way once he got to portland uh and probably the easiest way would be to shave I mean, for example, if the guy had a beard, it would have been very easy for him to step into the washroom or in one of the stalls and just shave a beard. But in some manner, modified his appearance and then, you know, obviously caught the jet and, and skyjacked it. And I and I believe that as part of this theory that um, because he had no luggage or anything like that, that he would have uh, his, his plan was actually to jump near Seattle. In other words, he would have ended his day right where it began. And it makes mm-hmm. sense on a number of different levels, uh, especially if you consider the fact, one thing that I've brought up a lot that people don't seem to <laughs> really be paying much attention to, but I think it's critically important is what would have happened if he would have had to abort. I mean, again, I've, you know, th- this guy was the second to last guy to walk on the jet. If he would have walked on that jet and, you know, the back two or three rows had a number of people sitting in them, Do you think um, I mean, I just don't think that he would have tried to skyjack the jet sitting somewhere in the middle of the the passengers. I just don't see that happening. So in other words, he would have had to have aborted. And, you know, so if he had to abort, you know, he flies to Seattle. I think he says a regular passenger and and gets off the plane in Seattle. And to me, it makes an awful lot of sense that, you know, if he aborts, he ends up in Seattle as well. (laughs) So he starts his day in Seattle. And whether he successfully executes the plan, he ends up in Seattle, or if he has to abort, he ends up in Seattle. Now, the one obvious thing here is he didn't actually jump near Seattle, but I think that's very explainable. So uh, given all of that, I I tend to think that he actually flew in on a a different airline and modified his appearance in some manner. Like I said, probably shaved or something like that. Maybe he did dye his hair. I don't know. That that seems a a lot less likely just because that's... I would imagine you kind of would notice that. <laughs> uh, but uh, so shaving would be no big deal. You know, if you had yeah, no shaving? shaving, I never, I never,
3: never thought of shaving. That's a, uh, that's a really good point that if he, if he planned it out, show up, start with a beard. And then that, that, that changes things. The reason I talk about the hair is that Bill Mitchell said that the, that Cooper's hair was, it was almost comical. He had, uh, it's just really like, hard heavy dyed black hair and uh that's why i wonder if if that's if that's truly the case then was that normal for him or did he did he do that in the bathroom somewhere i don't know but um yeah it's like every 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 little theory has has trees and limbs and it just keeps going and going and that's what makes this uh it's you you can't get away from it it's the vortex right so
0: tom how do you think he got to the airport You
1: know, uh, I stay away from things that I can't analyze,
0: right?
1: I, I, I have to work with some type of evidence that points in a direction one way or another. I don't see any, any type of, of factual evidence that would seem to suggest to me one way or another, uh, you know, did he, did he drive, did he leave his car at at Seattle? Um, I think that, you know, if you weren't checking the, the, the Portland airport by the next morning. Uh, he could have gotten back to the car and left with the car the next morning if he, if he walked back. I don't know. The certainly he he didn't plan to jump in the nighttime. He planned to jump in the daytime. Everything got delayed. Uh, he wanted to take off, I think, with the stairs down, if I remember correctly, and that would have meant he could have jumped sooner than later. He jumped fairly quickly. He didn't seem like he was waiting for much. Uh, so that again, like you say, these are a lot of the little. Ins and outs of the case, and it's it's hard to piece them together. Uh, I think you can you, uh, both uh, scenarios have equal validity. He started in Portland or he started in Seattle. I, I don't see anything I don't see any difference in those two scenarios, and I don't see any evidence that we would be able to point one way or another.
2: What do you think, Darren? I mean, you've obviously talked with a lot of people about this uh, any any personal thoughts with respect to that?
0: I, I tend to agree with Joe. I think it would be easy to. Not notice someone. I mean, if you asked a bunch of cab drivers, did you take anyone to the airport yesterday, a dude in a business suit? Um, and they'd all probably say, yes, I all, we all took that guy to the airport. So unless you were specifically looking out for him, you wouldn't notice him at all.
1: Well, the suit is one thing that doesn't, I don't think gets enough attention. Why would he choose to jump out of an airplane in a suit? right and uh that seems to be a very unusual choice and the only thing i can think of them that, that makes that a, a good choice is that if you're he was he knew he's going to end up nowhere right that way if you jump out of a plane you're not controlling really where you're not going to land next to the 7-eleven and make the phone call so he uh he had to jump somewhere remote enough that they wouldn't see the parachute coming down so he had to have some way of getting out of of no man's land there and getting back to wherever it was, his car, whatever he had. And maybe being in a suit at that point was an easier way to hitchhike out. So uh, I I think the suit is, is an integral part of the, of his plan. And the only thing I could think of is that it made him more uh, easy, easy to pick up and easy to give a good story as to why he's in the middle of nowhere. So something to think about.
2: Well, you bring up uh, you bring up a good point, Tom. And I've I've mentioned this before: is that you know people have pondered, you know, what rational person would parachute in the middle of the woods wearing a suit. And I've argued no rational person. That that you know I've argued that no one in their right mind would do that. There's certainly no indication uh, that DB Cooper was somehow sort of off his rocker in light of the way this thing was executed. He seemed to be. To, to the contrary, so it's going to be very bright, very methodical. Therefore, it just defies common sense that the guy would purposely wear a suit and jump into the middle of the woods. Uh, however, as you've alluded to, Tom, it makes an awful lot more sense if he, for example, intended to jump in the outskirts of Seattle, you know, just beyond the the, you know, just beyond the Seattle region or whatever where uh, it would involve a walk of maybe four or five or six miles or something like that to get to a pay phone or, or wherever. And then at that point, call a cab or something along those lines and uh, an to drive back to his hotel motel room, of course, if he, if he had something like that already lined up in the Seattle area. And the other critically important thing to remember here is that at this time, if he jumps out immediately after the jet takes off from Seattle or within a few minutes, not only do the authorities not know he's actually jumped from the airplane yet, they can't verify that for at least a few hours until that jet actually lands in Reno. The other thing is, nobody knows what the hell this guy looks like. There is no sc- description of DB Cooper out there. There is no DB Cooper sketch at this point. So, like I said in one of my recent YouTube videos, this guy could have walked down Main Street dressed like DB Cooper and looking exactly like DB Cooper, at least the guy that we know, and no one would have known anything. They they wouldn't have recognized him because nobody knows what the guy actually looks like. So he actually has the ability to move freely at least for several hours, completely unnoticed, no reason at all to expect that anybody's going to recognize who this guy is. Unless of course he's walking around town carrying a big white bank bag full of, you know, (laughs) $20 bills. So that's, uh, you know, so that's, those are my thoughts with respect to that. So I think that that actually explains the suit. Well, I got, I
1: got a little commentary on the money and the bank bag and all that Uh, because we've never found his parachute. You know, there's certain things that we can start thinking about 50 years after the fact here. Uh, One of them is that we never found the parachute. So that leads me to think, uh, and this is speculative, remember, so don't hold me to the fact that If it was me, and I knew I had, like you say, he had multiple hours of freedom of movement to do whatever he wants. He's not in a particular panic to get out of the neighborhood. Uh, He would have time to take his money, take his parachute, drag it near a road, stash the money in the parachute together near a road, get on the road in his suit, get back to his car or whatever, and then go back out to where he stashed the money in the parachute walk 20 feet in the woods, recover them both, and then take off. And that way he knew, which he was very cautious about in not leaving any fingerprints, that he didn't leave any trace behind of where he landed by taking the parachute with him along with the money. So I think there's a good chance that happened, and I don't think they would be under
3: any pressure to get out of Dodge at that point. Good points. I have uh, three three theories on why he wore the suit. One that's what he wore every day and he was there for a conference or he was in sales or he did something and it was a rumpled suit. He had a clip on tie. I don't think he wore suits a lot. And I think maybe that was the day he'd had enough. And that's when he decided to hijack the plane. The second one would be uh, Eric that you brought up. It's it's a lot easier to, to, to catch a ride. If you're in a suit, uh, you're hitchhiking and broke down versus um, in, uh, whatever, fatigues or whatever they were wearing in 1971. the 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 issue with that one is if if you're in a suit near Mount Hood, it's a little bit different than being in a suit near Seattle. And the third one is, yeah, it's just I think it's cooler to wear a suit. And Eric, I think you and I might have traded messages on the Cooper forum on that. And that and that's a whole that's a whole nother tangent. That's my whole Cary Grant, uh, William J. Smith deal, but. It's just it's cool to wear a suit. I mean, think about it, we wouldn't even be we might not be talking about this guy if he had been wearing uh, jeans and a I don't even know what they were wearing back in 71. Some some shirt or something, but a suit and sunglasses and slicked black hair, uh, slicked back black hair, uh, you know, a, a dapper debonair kind of cool dude, James Bond esque. That's my, that's my number one, but, uh, there is many, many, many options.
0: I like that theory the best too, because it's cool.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: (laughs) it is very cool. You know, the interesting thing about this, Joe, and it got in your comments just reminded me of this is, you know, if you consider what this guy did, you know, nearly 50 years ago and just, I've often thought about this, what, what this guy's decision led to all these years later, and how it's affected my life personally, as well as a number of other people. I mean, none of us in all likelihood would know each other if it weren't for the fact that this guy executed this this skyjacking years ago. True, um, and, and the thing is is you know the reality is is I've actually met a lot of very cool people and talked with a lot of very cool people that have had some sort of involvement with this DV Cooper case. So that's actually a very cool sort of silver lining part of this case. The other interesting thing to contemplate, just just sheer economics of it all. This guy skyjacked $200,000, which obviously the insurance company made the airline whole with the exception of the $20,000 deductible. But if you think about the amount of money that has been spent the amount of money that has been generated in the economy, writing books, you know, filming documentaries and and things of that nature, hosting Cooper of of events, things like that. It's astounding. I mean, I think on measure it, it actually ironically has benefited society economically just for given the amount of economic activity that surrounded this guy uh, over the last 50 years. So it's really kind of a remarkable uh aspect of the i case. agree i agree with you 100 yeah
3: and now with this uh either whatever we're gonna call this quarantine or coronavirus and all the rest of it it's like like i said I, darren asked me hey do you have time to get on uh tomorrow and i was like yeah you know what i got plenty of time i can do this 24 <laughs> 7 so until <till> things <laughs> change so yeah yeah so he's still benefiting us today 50 years later
0: well you guys brought up a good point about how much attention the case gets and how much money this is a generated for the economy. Why do you guys think this case doesn't get the kind of attention? Some other cases do when I believe this is like the greatest unsolved mystery probably of all time.
1: Well, it gets better when you get more detail in this case, right? It's not something you, you can, you can say, Hey, you know, uh, so-and-so got murdered over there and you know they found her in a pool of blood it's not easy to understand by joe average right away most of the people that are fascinated with the case get more fascinated with the more that more of the details that come out uh, because trying to piece together the details to understand what happened is the is the real attraction for i think most people in this case that are sucked into the vortex so uh That's the deal, you know, more details, better case. Most people can't sit around and wait for details.
3: Great way to put it. Yeah, I agree with that. It's not a sensational either. There's no, there is no murder. There is no uh, mass murder and all the rest of it. So, but yeah, I ponder that as well. Go ahead, Eric.
2: I was just going to say, I'm not really sure that that's even really accurate. What I mean is it it does seem that more people are familiar with Amelia Earhart than D.B. Cooper. Uh, but that said, it seems like there's a lot more DB Cooper-related documentaries. DB Cooper's have featured it in a lot more episodes of other shows, and there are an awful lot of books related to DB Cooper. And I'm not certain that there's the same number of Amelia Earhart-type of things. I'm, I may be wrong about that, but it, it, it doesn't seem like it's like Amelia Earhart's running away with this thing. Uh, But I I don't know. I mean, it's it's uh, that's a good question. Uh, It's a good question to ponder. And, you know, listen, with the 50th anniversary coming up here in November of 2021, uh, I think there's going to be a a significant amount of publicity surrounding this case uh, during that time as we as we lead up to 2021, which could change things as well. Well, we also need something new. You know, I have reporters that are on standby all
1: the time say when something new breaks me a call but you know if not uh you know we're not going to do something every year anymore the way they used to so it's seen a lot of legs you know certainly this cooper investigation has got a lot more legs than you'd think and it's you know kept me on tv for a decade so i can't complain much but uh the uh i think it's a great story it's one of the few great uh, stories that we have and uh i would love to, to see how cooper what cooper himself thought of it all after the fact you know how would, you, how would you like to be the guy that's on TV all the time? And you know you are, but nobody else mm-hmm. knows that. That would be a hard thing right. to live with, you know, not being able to tell your story.
0: Oh, I think about that all the time. Was he watching the documentaries? Did he see that episode of Unsolved Mysteries? Uh, was he reading the books about himself? <laughs>
1: yeah, you, you imagine that'd be quite a trip, huh?
2: Very real possibility. So I'm just curious, Joe like how did you sort of like get sucked into this thing man I mean like this is uh I, like I know me i I wasn't planning this it just sort of happened and let's thing I know I'm involved with this shit somehow <laughs> but uh, what's uh I mean how, how did you get kind of wrapped into this thing uh yeah I, I talked about that
3: briefly when I was on the podcast uh, with Darren a couple months ago I think I was just I was i was bored for for a minute i I got an email from my brother and we had watched unsolved mysteries as a kid and we talked about it and every time it showed up in the newspaper it would come up but i didn't i didn't have any information on it i didn't own any books or anything and and i don't even know if i had been to the wikipedia page so if you would ask me two years ago about db cooper i would be able to tell you yeah, he hijacked the plane in in the northwest and and I, I probably would have said it was two hundred thousand dollars and that maybe they found some money. but there's no way I would have been able to to hold my own in a conversation. Um, and I got on Wikipedia, and there's there's some term I forget, but it, if you if you go on Wikipedia and you start clicking the hyperlinks, you, you just keep going down the spiral. So you could start with D b. Cooper and then go to Seattle, and then from Seattle you go into uh, grunge rock, and now you're at Pearl Jam or Kurt Cobain or something. It just never, never ends. And I went into this DB Cooper spiral and I started to look at the flight path and how he would spend the money. And I'm, I'm an analyst by trade. I'm a program analyst now, but I, I I've studied the numbers. Tom, so definitely not as analytical as you. Um, I, I, I do like a lot of the theories in this, but that's, that's kind of how I got into it and. I got into Max Gunther's book. I taught to Bruce Smith. I taught to Martin Andrade. I, I think if if I if the first person I'd emailed was Georgia, I would have gotten I would have left the case immediately because I did email Georgia at some point. or And, and I got, you know, obviously a, uh, a crotchety response that, you know, had that had that been the first response, I would have quit. But I, I taught to Bruce and I taught to Martin and. I was thinking to myself, wow, this is cool. I'm talking to two guys that have written books that that are on TV, or Bruce was on TV, and there was always that, there was always that, there was always that one little nugget that kept me going. I I, I could never get away, and uh, that that was that was that, Eric. I, I don't I don't really have any any other explanation. I'm not a scientist. I'm not. Uh, I ha- I've been a skydiver, but. I'm not a, a 377. Seven. I don't have a, a 10,000 jumps or a thousand jumps, but uh, it's fascinating. As, as a kid, you you, you kind of you root for the cops, but you sometimes root for the robbers. There's an aviation aspect to it. I, I love aviation. Um, the money. There's just there's so much to it, and that's kind of that's kind of that. There yeah, is always yeah, that, no,
0: it's... Uh, there. There is always that nugget to the case that always keeps you coming back. There's that one new thing somehow in this 50 year old case.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I think you know. I think with with me, I think the main thing that got me involved, and I'm, you know, it was sort of, it was mundane. Like I can't really identify specifically what it was, but I, I think as I think back, I think generally, the thing that that got me really into this heavy, which is probably 10, 11, 12 years ago. Even though I've been familiar with the case for over 40 years, uh, I believe was probably this just this pop up occasionally about DB Cooper, whether it's Dwayne Weber or or, or whomever, it was just a bunch of bullshit. And it just seemed to me that you know there was just so much conspiracy and crap and just fakeness around a lot of the stuff that I was seeing in the papers and seeing on documentaries and so forth that I just thought this is, you know, this is almost a waste of my time. What the hell do these people know? You know, I'm a pretty no-nonsense kind of person. I just, I'm not I'm not the kind of guy that's like September 11th was an inside job. The royal family killed Princess Diana. That's just not the way I roll. That's not the way my mind thinks. So I thought, you know, screw it. I mean, there's enough information out there where – You know, I could probably come up with a pretty solid theory myself about what happened and probably know a hell of a lot more than most of the people that I'm reading about in the the newspapers and things of this nature. And I think that's ultimately what sort of got me started. And then it became sort of like a personal challenge. (laughs) Like, I'm going to, you know, I am going to figure this damn thing out. Uh, But I think that's ultimately what what probably motivated me uh, a dozen years ago. Hmm. And Tom, you got involved through the FBI, right, or, or were you involved before
3: that?
1: No, no, I got sucked into this thing sideways. I, sure. uh, I knew, I knew about the DB Cooper case, you know, in passing. I never had any particular interest in it at all. And then uh, I got a, a email from Georgia uh, saying, "Would you be interested in, in analyzing the money from the DB Cooper case?" So uh, it, it, you know, I was a little bit flattered. I thought, wow, you know, he, Georgia knew of my work in uh, astronomy, and he knew I did this kind of thing. So I had never talked to him before. So I was a little bit flattered, thinking, wow, you know, they they picked me out of the out of the lineup here to do this analysis. And I said yes. I found out later that he actually he called ten other people in front of me, and uh, <laughs> everybody turned him down. I was the first one idiot to say yes. So. <laughs> Uh, so that's how I got into it, you know? And then, uh, once, once things started moving, I saw that there was a lot of actual science that could be applied to the stories to see if they were right. And the first things we found out were that the FBI's theories were most likely not right. The whole Washougal washdown theory and things like that were very poorly researched. And then we went to Tina Barr, we saw the clay layers and all this. And we kind of realized that they did the best job they could back then, but being able to investigate new, you know, come up with new information uh, was was kind of neat, and that was a lot of fun, and that's kind of what's happened. And now it's gotten very interesting lately, as I said before, with the diatoms, because that's the first new kind of scientific investigation we can do on this in a little while. So uh, yeah, I was, I was not the uh, I, I was not a fan before this. I got uh, I got drawn in. I got reeled in. So that's
0: how that happened.
3: (laughs) Okay. Darren, what about you? I think you mentioned it before. It was Unsolved Mysteries as well.
0: Yeah, I saw Unsolved Mysteries, of course, as a kid. But really what got me real sucked in was uh, Skyjack by Jeffrey Gray. I uh, got a copy of that book and it led me to Robert Blevins' book, um, Into the Blast. And so I ordered that book and then got on the forums and everything. And I was like, wow, this is a crazy world. And there is a lot going on here. And from there I was just completely sucked in. Easy to do.
3: Right. (laughs) right. There's
0: something for everybody
1: to think about here. Like, you know, if you're an analyst there's something to think about, if you're a nature lover guy there's something to think about, if you're an aviation guy, there's lots of details in this thing. And uh, I think that's what, a, there's a, a little bit of appeal to everybody. You can pick which corner of the case appeals to you. And there's a lot of question marks there. And it just seems like maybe you can figure this out. I mean, it seems like it's right on the edge. And that's that's the frustrating part because it seemed that way for the last 10 years to me. So
2: that's how it goes. It's, it's like the ultimate riddle. And that's actually how I describe this thing is it's very much a riddle. Because, you know, you know, it's true. I mean, this is a real story. This actually happened. This isn't, you know, flipping Oak Island or some crap like that. This is the real deal. And, you know, we know, you know, there are a fair number of like little tidbits and things that we know about Cooper and what transpired and the money and things of that nature. And, you know, it has to somehow fit together and make perfect sense. So it's really kind of like, the ultimate riddle. And I, and I think that's part of what attracts me to it as well. I'd sort of relish the, the, the challenge, the mental challenge of trying to figure this riddle out, how this whole thing fits together. And I relish the opportunity to try to come up with uh, ways to kind of squeeze out more and more data or more and more information related to the case. I'll give you an example uh, one of the things that I'm working on right now is a, uh, and I'm going to be launching here pretty soon, and, not, and you know, we'll, we'll talk about it later, we'll hear about it later on, but it's, it's basically, I call it a D.B. Cooper bill initiative, and specifically uh, offering up $25,000 to the first person who can actually come up with an actual D.B. Cooper $20 bill. Uh, outside of one of the ones that was found on the beach. And the rationale behind it was this. Uh, I started thinking that if this money actually was spent, if D.B. Cooper actually did spend this money, there, there was a very good chance that some of that money, some of those bills are still in circulation today, believe it or not. So I actually started looking into this I contacted the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and they actually supplied me with a number. They actually had a precise number of the number of $20 bills in circulation at the end of 1971 when this thing took place. And it was also armed with the knowledge that DB Cooper was handed 20 dollars bills. So. You know, basically applying a math and everything to it, I realized that essentially one out of every 100,000 bills, twenty-dollar bills in circulation, at the end of 1971, was a DB Cooper twenty-dollar bill. And then I started looking into uh, the, you know, how, how these bills end up getting eventually pulled back into the treasury and destroyed and, and replaced by additional currency and analyzing sort of the trends and how that all works and everything, what I ended up coming to, this realization that I ended up coming to was that if D.B. Cooper actually spent all of that money, somehow or another, it ended, it re-entered circulation, that today, 2020, today, there would be approximately 50 of the original 10,000 bills still in circulation. So my thought is, you know what? Why not enlist the public you know, encourage people who happen to have an older $20 bill, Series 69, 63, you know, one of the D.B. Cooper series, and get them to, you know, come to a website, run the, the serial number through and see if it actually matches. Now, one of two things is either going gonna, gonna to happen here. Either, you know, there's going to be a shitload of people that come to the site and put in serial numbers and that kind of thing, and nothing matches. or something's gonna match. Obviously, if we find so much as a single bill in circulation, well, that puts an end to the discussion of whether or not D.B. Cooper lived, I I believe, because there's one that was actually spent. But likewise, if for example, you get 100,000 individual uh, serial numbers that are run through the system for appropriate bills series, and none of them match Then you could start applying some math to this, Joe, you can appreciate this. You can start applying math given, you know, again, the realization that one out of every $100,020 bills that time was a D.B. Cooper bill, it's uh, mathematically more likely than not that if you get 100,000 trials, 100,000 people punching in 100,000 different serial numbers, there's a reasonably good chance that one of those numbers would be a D.B. Cooper $20 bill. Certainly, if you get two or three hundred thousand people worldwide that are made aware of this, you know, D.D. Cooper bill initiative, there's a very real possibility that one of those 50, if there's 50 out there, would pop up. Of course, if nothing comes up, then that gives you a pretty good idea that the money actually wasn't spent, which means it's probably still out there somewhere. So that's that's part of it, too. I think that's what's part of intriguing about this case is trying to outsmart, you know, try to figure out what we can do now how, how we can kind of get clever to squeeze out effect information affect data about the case i think that's awesome i uh i get a couple comments
3: on that i'll i'll donate to the twenty five thousand dollar pool it's not gonna be much but maybe every little bit counts um i like the yeah i like the i like the analytical approach to it that was like I had said earlier in the podcast, I, I looked at the flight path because there was a lot of math involved with that in terms of um, distance and um, altitude and winds and everything else. Uh, but I also looked at the money and you and I can connect offline, Eric, if you do go ahead with that, because. I've gone on, I think it was check6.com uh, when I first started and you can input serial numbers and see yep. if you have a DB Cooper 20. And I think I remember actually finding a serial number of a real DB Cooper 20 and I put it in and it didn't come back for some reason and it, it could have been, you know, user input error, but I have, and I could talk for a while this. I'm just going to try to quickly summarize it. The Tina Bar money find is is intriguing. I, I don't I've studied it, I've looked at it, it's always interesting to me. I don't feel like I can add a whole lot to that. Uh, however, ten thousand twenty dollar bills likely left that airplane. Uh, they did. They they left somehow. Now there's some theories that maybe the the stewardesses took a little bit, but let's let's assume that ten thousand bills went out with with D.B. Cooper. Only three hundred were found. At Tina Bar, roughly six thousand dollars, maybe a little less than three hundred. So there's ninety seven hundred twenty dollar bills that went somewhere. Uh, they could have been buried. They could have. Uh, I don't think they they stayed in the river. I I, I feel that they they went home with with DB Cooper. Now he, he may have he may not have spent anything. He may have said, "Hey, I'm good. I, I It's a victory. I don't want to get caught." Uh, but that that's a that's a tough one for me to believe you've got all that money and you don't spend a little bit of it. So I I do think he spent it. I also, I also believe that those, those bills could have been doctored just a little bit. If he wanted to, he could have taken a 63 a series and erased the a, uh, with just a little bit of nail polish remover. And, uh, or he could have changed the eights to threes or the threes to eights. There's all sorts of different little things that could have been done. And what I'm leading to is, I think I think that that may that may get the public behind you. I think there there there'll be some 20s and there's going to be some people putting putting their numbers in. I would say that if someone comes close, if they have the matching serial number, but it's a 1963 and not a 63A, or they have a serial number that's very close, but it's off. Uh, instead of an eight, there's a three, or there's a three, there's an eight, and it's 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 within that. I think that we'd have to find a way to capture those because if he doctored the money, uh, there was a one suspect was a counterfeiter. I think a counterfeiter could have could have could have done that. Uh, I know some people believe he just spent it because the casinos and and the banks were not looking for the money. But that's a that's a big gamble. Um, And you do talk about the finding the bills. There's there's something called a hypergeometric distribution, which is you sample a a series of 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 numbers and you um if if there's a million bills out there and you're all you need to do is find 120 one 120 dollar bill satisfies your your requirements you don't need to to sample all one million dollar bills you all million twenty dollar bills you only need to sample a very very small amount because at some point you're going to get to such a high probability that you've that you'll likely find a bill it, it kind of goes along with the uh the birthday probably you'll see it on wikipedia so I, I i think that would work i, I wish we could have done that in, in 1971 i think they would have found bills i think if the fbi had had maybe a, an operations research analyst on on the payroll right then they could have done that they could have just gone after san francisco uh, federal reserve twenty dollar bills of these series and i think they would have found that that these bills were in, um, they were in circulation. That,
2: that's awesome, Eric, I'd, I'd love to see that happen. It'd be great. No, I, I think it's, a, again, it's one of those, sort of a no-lose situation, because um, you know my, my estimates, as I kind of applied the math to it, I estimated that 0.5%, approximately 0.5% of the $20 bills that were in circulation in essentially January, 1972, are still in circulation. So you're talking about one out of every 200 roughly. And, and, you know, and that's why you come up with, there'll be something around 50. Now you you can pull out the, you know, $6,000, you're talking 49. But, you know, uh, it's obviously not an exact science, but I I did research and I did look at, uh, you know, circulation levels and how these things get replaced and all that other kind of stuff. So again, in all likelihood, uh, it's an almost uh, certain, uh, it's almost certain that, if indeed the full amount of the money was spent, uh, that there would be something mighty close to 50 of those bills still hanging out somewhere today. Someone's piggy bank, you know, something, you know, there's still still gonna be around there somewhere. And the cool thing about today, you know, this is where time actually helps us out is that we have things like the internet and optical reading devices on cell phones and things like that. So, you know, it's very easy for someone uh, realizing there's a $25,000 reward out there if they happen to find a bill to look and see if they happen to have an older $20 bill, snap a picture on their phone, send it in, and, and you know, it can be optically read, or perhaps it's, uh, uh, you know, there, there's some uh, mitigation levels or things put in there that account for something like you said, Joe, or maybe the number is very close and you want to just be certain that somebody didn't slightly alter the serial number. Those are all yeah. things that can be done. But uh, Yeah. I think, awesome. I think it's, I think
0: it's very cool. So. Plus it could bring out the gal who has that 20, her grandpa gave her who he said it was from the hijacking.
2: <laughs> the gal who's, who has the $20 bill that grandpa gave her that's from the hijacking.
1: Right. I, I didn't hear about that one. Yeah,
3: that's new
2: to me too. <laughs> <Yeah>. I,
1: <laughs> I do have the guy that's got the trunk in his attic though, that belonged to Cooper with the parachute in it. So I, I got that guy. So okay. uh, He's out there.
3: Yeah, I think that's fantastic. That this that could you, you raise a good point. You can really narrow it down and just say, hey, if you have a, you, if you have a 1963 or a 69 series, you know, we then send it to us. Take a picture, and we'll we'll give you a gift card. And if it, if you do win, we'll give you twenty five thousand uh, dollars. Yeah. Wow, that, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very that's creative. True. That's a that's a good way to actually, you know, get some facts about the problem that's what we don't have. We don't have enough facts about the whole situation. This would generate more new actual facts. Bravo. Yeah. So, you know, that brings me to something I want to relate to you about the rarity of the D.B. Cooper case. Because, you know, if you look at the popularity of Oak Island, uh, which never actually happened uh, in D.B. Cooper, uh, I was approached by some uh, producers several years back, and they said, well, we'd like you to do an investigation. You can pick whatever you want to do, but it can't be D.B. Cooper. Right? So that set me on a on a on a you know a chase to try and find a DB Cooper equivalent type of case. So here's the problem. It had to be a case that was old enough that modern forensic investigation wasn't used on it, but young enough that there was still evidence around to analyze. And this turned out to be a real problem. And actually I couldn't find anything that was at all interesting. Uh, that met those requirements, eventually I came and kind of thought, well, I'll investigate the Nazi gold train. Uh, But they said, no, you know, we want you to keep it in this country. So that kind of gives you an idea about how rare the Cooper case actually is. And that's one of the reasons why we can work on it, because uh, what was done in in 71 uh, was not equivalent to the types of things we can do today. You know, as as Eric just mentioned, you know, it's put out a reward to have people automatically, you know, enter their numbers on the Internet. That wasn't possible in 71. So, uh, yeah, if you guys come up with anything similar to Cooper, I'm interested. But there are very, very few and far between.
0: Wait, I'm more fascinated with why it can't be D.B. Cooper. If I was producing TV shows, it would be the opposite. I'd say you can do anything you want as long as it's D.B. Cooper. (laughs) Well,
1: you know, everybody's looking for the next Oak Island, right? That's the thing with these producers. They don't really much care what they're doing their show on. You know, they'll be onto something next week, uh, which is one of the problems. Why the fact we don't usually get really good documentaries is because there's rarely any science people actually involved in writing the story. Usually the science guys are called in after the, the draft is written and they need you to fill in this five minute blank. So, uh, yeah, that's what happens. But uh, I haven't found any good ones yet. But uh, Cooper, Cooper remains king of that type of show.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. He's a very unique uh, individual. It's a very unique subject that kind of checks a lot of boxes, and it's it's clear to me that there's a a significant appetite for the right type of Cooper programming. Um, you know, that's you know that that's just the reality of it all. So, I mean, the whole thing that triggered. Well, actually, I'm, let me just step back here. Uh Joe, were you ever approached by anybody, producers or anything like that, uh, to maybe explore the prospect of a documentary or anything based upon your work related to uh, William Smith?
3: Uh,
2: no, not not that I can think of it. I think
3: um, I think it's he's too new. Maybe uh, I, I brought him the first public there's a little bit on Twitter, I think, but the the first public uh, announcement of of William J. Smith was November of 2018 when Doug Perry did an article in the Oregonian. Uh, So that's, I mean, what is that? We're talking less than 18 months ago. So no one, um, you know, I've had a few people say, hey, I'm doing a podcast, but yeah, there's been nothing. I've never, never have been approached. I think it's I guess he's too
2: new or maybe it's it's too crazy of a suspect uh i just yeah
3: the answer is no i guess yeah you
2: yeah. know i think that's i mean i think that's part actually what what makes it somewhat salient is is the fact that it's it's not your run-of-the-mill guy you know somebody that we've heard about a thousand times before what have you i mean I just, you know that's just been my experience because I mean, what triggered all of this stuff for me was the Doug Perry long form article that he wrote about, you know, my work that centered around not only Sheridan Peterson, but also uh, Bachelor Island. You know, my my whole belief that the flight that the true and uh, flight path was was what I describe as the Western flight path. And uh, I know when we when that article ran, uh, all of a sudden I started getting phone calls from from production companies and uh, I was actually w- awakening it. 2 30 in the morning by a company in london saying hey you know you thought about this uh so i actually feel that a a handful of of people uh calls and and i you know i was very particular the thing that i said is that yeah i'm you know i'm interested in in exploring something like this but i'm not interested in something that's sensationalized i I just don't want to go there it's got to be like legit you know that's it it's got to be legit i'm just i'm just i don't give a shit that much to see my face on TV where I'm going to like sell my soul has to be like legit. And, uh, so I ended up settling with, uh, you know, working with one production company based in LA and, uh, you know, and, you know, and and Tom probably knows the process, you know, you kind of put together the sizzle reel and you go out there and pitch it and everything else. And the, you know, it's all about, you know, it's all about the pitch and everything else. And, and, getting something greenlit is next to impossible. I mean, I don't know what the odds are, but it's extremely remote, but I actually was part of the pitch process. Um, so it's actually flew out to LA and, um, and we, the very first uh, company we pitched it to is history channel. And within like a few weeks it was greenlit. So it was a very rare situation to have that happen. But, uh, but uh, yeah, so yeah, I was I was kind of wondering if if your experience was at all like mine because again, it was Doug Perry's article that actually triggered that for me, and I, and I suspected it was going to happen. I actually kind of knew in advance that when that article came out, that that was probably gonna you know effectuate some outreach on the part of some producers and that type of thing. So yeah, I think uh, Tom
3: Tom, you mentioned you got reporters that are kind of waiting for something new. And and, and there, may be, there may be kind of a sense of malaise out there that every now and then there's a Cooper suspect that shows up and everyone says, well, we keep hearing about this. I did notice, Eric, when, when that article came out about you, what made it different, uh, you, you, you've had a suspect, right, and he's an interesting guy and most all these suspects are interesting. Uh, I think the public is is more they want to hear more about the CIA Walter Recca than they do the um, railroad worker William J Smith. However, the it seems like the threshold was crossed when you you came in and said, "Look, I'm going to I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to investigate uh, Bachelor Island. It's never been done before." So from a from a TV producer standpoint, they can say to their boss, "Hey, this isn't just a new suspect. We're we're we're, we're breaking new ground here. We're doing something different." And um, I I haven't really pushed William J. Smith. I you know I float him out there here and there. And I'm definitely not the Rackstraw group. I don't I don't have the money or the time, and I'm not my my trade is not uh, TV. It just isn't. That I watch it, but I, I'm that's not my business. I'm happy doing what I do. Um, I also. There's, there's things I haven't done yet. The, the the William J. Smith family has not weighed in at all. I haven't asked them to. No one's asked them. I was just about starting the process of maybe trying to kind of figure a way to politely get them involved. Uh, my understanding is they're they're a good family. There's nothing uh, there, There's nothing negative about them. So I'm 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 very aware of that. Obviously, right now, I'm not going to I'm not going to contact anybody during this whole uh, coronavirus virus mess. But um, it is it is interesting to see which suspects get traction, which don't and for what reasons. Um, the, the whole Walter Recca piece was, yeah, it's fascinating. Somebody that that worked for the KGB. But I mean, I'm, I, I work for the government and I know that that's a complete hoax. So um, if if Walter Rekka lied to his friend and then his friend told whoever, his friend was telling the truth as he knew it. So he's going to pass a lie detector test, right? Um, yeah. And, but anyhow, uh, I think it, it's good. I'm, I'm looking forward to the uh, the HBO show and then the History Channel show, Eric, that you're having in July. I think those will be good, um, even just for visibility. So.
0: Yeah, it'll be really good for the case to have both – Uh, Eric's documentary come out and that, uh, that BBC one, BBC, HBO one coming out later also.
1: Yeah, but the BBC one didn't, they they talked to me on occasion. They were going to have me on. They didn't seem very sophisticated. I think it sounds like they're introducing DB Cooper. It's not a, it didn't sound from the little, I talked to them very in depth. They ended up just using some of the pictures from our website. So, uh, Uh, I'll be curious to see how that one comes
0: out. I'm curious also, I mean, just being aware of all the people in the the Cooper community, you know, it seems like they interviewed an interesting group of people. I think it was Blevins, the Foremans, and a couple of uh, interesting D.B. Cooper in the media personality also.
1: Yeah, that doesn't sound like a real serious investigation of the Cooper mystery to me, but... Um, you know a lot of times these things are focused on the people aspect so they want to hear about all kinds of suspect stuff yeah you get most shows are focused on some kind of suspect
2: yeah my understanding is that that hbo show is sort of just revisiting kind of just the case as we sort of know almost as if somebody opened up the wikipedia page and worked off of the you know the suspects that are listed on there and and it's just sort of, yeah, it's probably meant for individuals who are not very familiar with the case, just sort of, uh, it's just sort of an introductory type of thing and focuses on, uh, or at least mentions, I should say, some of the suspects that uh, we've all heard of before. Uh, so I, I think that's it. You know, with, with, with my particular thing, it, it breaks a lot of new territory, breaks a lot of new ground. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be very different. It's going to be very different, uh, n- nothing like it. And, uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, just very much looking forward to getting out there as well. And, and, uh, you know, I, I think that people will be, um, I think people will be surprised and impressed with a lot of what, what comes out, but hell, that's easy for me to say because, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm involved with it, but, uh. Hey, Eric. Uh, I, got a, yeah. I got a question for you. Um, Larry
3: Fishburne is is hosting that, correct?
2: Yeah, he, Lawrence, he's, Lawrence. Fishburne. Lawrence. Yeah, Lawrence. Larry. He's, yeah. He's doing what they call the tops and tails. In other words, as you kind of come in and out of commercials, that kind of thing. He kind of sort of reintroduces the the the, the show or what's going on at that moment. The actual narration of the show is is me. Which, which I actually like a lot uh, because, like, for example, if you look at the History Channel special from 2016, you know, you had sort of that uh, commentator, narrator guy that was kind of providing sort of the roadmap for what was going on with Billy Jensen and all those guys investigating. Uh, yeah, but, but in this case, I'm actually the one narrating it, which I, I think uh, uh, is important because it's centered around my work, my research, I mean, what it is that I'm looking at. And, and, and you know, helping explain the conclusions and stuff that I've come to. Uh, and there's an active element. We There's actually a search that takes place and everything else. Uh, so, um, yeah. But, yeah, as far as Great. Lawrence Fish, Fishburne, uh, yeah, he's just, uh, you know, bringing the show in and bringing it out in and out of commercials and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good Did deal.
0: he welcome yeah. you to the real world?
2: Uh, this this must be uh, some kind of uh, matrix kind of thing or something. <laughs> yeah, you haven't it's a seen cultural the cultural pop
1: reference. We're too old to understand, probably.
3: I don't understand <laughs> it. Yeah, we're the all yeah. there. Maybe we're all
2: too old. You guys haven't
0: seen the Matrix?
3: Yeah, I call him Larry because of Apocalypse Now. I think that's what they they and I'm not that old. I just I, I've heard him called Larry Fishburne, but yeah, I, most people know him from the Matrix. Now that I think about it, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess we're all. Uh, we're all, we're all too old for that, Darren. Man, so
3: <laughs> I, I
0: can't believe you guys haven't seen the Matrix.
2: Well, I've seen I mean, it. I love it. I've I seen it. all yeah. the Matrixes.
3: Yeah, yeah. The multi Matrix. <laughs> we're living it. We're living in it right now. I don't need to see it now. So.
0: Yeah, that's true. I, but uh, I've got another question for you guys from, from Patrick, and this is something, Eric, you might be able to speak on, but Bruce has talked before that they were serving drinks on the on the flight to calm people down and a cowboy got out of hand. And Patrick wants to know if you know anything about the cowboy or anyone else that interacted with Cooper during the flight,
1: a cowboy and they were passing
2: out drinks on the flight.
1: Oh, Not because they're being hijacked because they're being delayed. That's why. Right. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't, I mean, I've, I've heard that and there was actually something in the fbi files uh i'm trying to remember there was something in the fbi files that referenced uh i don't want to call it an altercation but but some sort of something so and the way the fbi files describe it i can't remember the exact terminology used but it it is an overstatement to suggest that there was any kind of conflict at all. Uh, I don't remember exactly what, what it was, but uh, uh, I, you know, again, I, I, again, I I live in the real world, man. I mean, I look at the documents, I look at the evidence, obviously there's contradictory evidence here and there in the files and you got to be careful of that. But um, I just, I haven't seen anything that's, you know, that's legit. I haven't seen anything that suggests that there was, you know, basically that Cooper was close to coming to blows with somebody. Like, I, I just haven't seen that. I know that there was something that happened or somebody mentioned something or somebody stepped in in some way, uh, Cooper or something. But, it, you know, I don't recall it ever being a very big deal. As far as serving drinks to calm the passengers down, that's just horseshit as well. Like, they may have been serving drinks to some of the passengers i I don't know but nobody needed to be calmed down nobody knew the damn jet was being skyjacked i mean you know you talk to anybody and they say you know (laughs) with very few exceptions they had no idea what the hell was going on they just knew that it was taking an awful long time to land and then once they actually walked off the jet and were met by you know fbi agents then they realized what what was going on but it wasn't like, you know, the whole jet was aware that there was this dude in the back, you know, you know, rolling with a bomb or some, something like that. That's just that's just horse crap. And unfortunately, there's an awful lot of that sort of misinformation and mischaracterization out there. Yeah, one comment on that, um, I, I definitely have never
3: seen that in the 302s. I've never seen it. I don't think I've ever seen it in a book, but I do. I do remember hearing about it because when I spoke to Bruce Smith, when I first joined the case, his, he originally, uh, one of his the earliest things he said to me was what you're reading is not everything. And he talked about, I don't, know if he talked about the cowboy, he talked about the drinks and he talked about more going on on the flight than was ever published. I don't know where he got that from. I, I, I trust Bruce, like all of us do. He, we'd have to maybe follow up with him. I don't know what the source is for that, but he, he definitely has information on that, and um, that's about all I could say on that. So, but there is a lot of disinformation out there, or false information. Disinformation indicates that somebody's doing something on purpose. But it, it, I, I did hear about it. I, I've never read it though. I've read the 302s. Eric, you've read a lot more than I have. But I've, I've read quite a quite a bit. I've
2: never seen it. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about it. And it's in a sort of the inconvenient truth about a lot of this crap is that we're actually getting the files. We're reading this stuff now. I mean, we're reading what the FBI was actually communicating during that time. So again, when Bruce says something like, you know, you're not getting the full story, da 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 the implication is that the FBI is holding something back. Whatever. I I haven't seen it. Where is it being held back? Where is it? There's nothing there that I've seen. I mean, the FBI files were up into, you know, 1981 right now with these FBI files, you know, the money's already been discovered on Tina Barr and there's, I've seen nothing, absolutely nothing at all. And multiple 302s from Tina Mucklow and others. And you would think that if there was some sort of like serious come to blow kind of a situation there, that that would have been reflected by someone, one of the flight attendants, not a peep, nothing at all. So, uh Again, I live in the real world. I just, I just don't believe it. You know, It's it's just another one of these attempts, I think, uh, to sort of throw a little bit of conspiracy and spice things up when it's really wholly unnecessary. I mean, the case is cool enough and interesting enough as it is without having to have other things kind of thrown in the mix. Yeah, I agree.
3: You raise a point. Bruce, Bruce may not have had all the 302s at that time. There's been a lot released since his book came out. I've always wondered, though, Tina Mucklow spent a lot of time with D.B. Cooper, and all we have is a 302s. And I, I rem- the first time I heard about a 302 was from the movie The Town. Uh, it takes place in Boston. There's this one little part that mentions it. And the next time I heard about a 302 was during uh, the Supreme Court hearings for the nomination of, of Justice Kavanaugh. And there was this belief that the FBI would, would, would return a verdict on yes or no, whether they should have Kavanaugh as the judge. But what they said was they would give 302s and 302 was a summary of an interview with whoever. And we have that from the case. If you look at the files that are out there, majority of the files are about suspects that were investigated. If you, if you pare that down to just 302s on the actual flight, it's a very small percentage of of all the thre- of all the uh, of all the FBI information. And what I wonder, I've I've wondered this and no one's been able to answer the question. Was Tina ever recorded? Was Florence Schaffner ever recorded? Was uh, the were the pilots were um, Alice Hancock or was were these simply interviews? And then the agents summarized it and returned to 302.
1: There were no recordings that we saw. Okay. And we would have seen that. You know, we saw a lot of details of of that nature. So, and everything, the thing that we learned about dealing with the FBI is that if if the interview was non productive or the investigation turned up no evidence, they wouldn't talk about it. In other words, there's no entries in those 302s that say, you know, well, there may be some, but for the most part, if they went somewhere and, and investigated something and it didn't produce anything, there wouldn't be a report about it. So uh, sometimes negative evidence is important, uh, especially right. in, in uh, science. You know, in our research in science, negative evidence is very important. Uh, and that doesn't seem to be the case with the FBI. So they did more work than actually shows in the 302s. But a lot sure. of it is dead ends.
3: Makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about something we touched on uh, real brief there, and that's misconceptions in the case. Uh, what are some of your. Uh, The misconceptions in the case that frustrate you the most people come up to you and say, you know, I know this about the case or I bet DB Cooper hid in the plane when it landed and then got off. Tom, why don't we start with you on misconceptions people have on the case?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I'm going to paint this with a really broad brush then, you know, the, the thing that bugs me is that everybody's got a suspect, right? So everybody starts with a suspect and then, Uh, Looks into it and finds things that connect their suspect to the case, and I think it's a good idea. Don't get me wrong, because that's the only way you investigate these suspects. If we did it enough, eventually we're going to find Cooper. Uh, You know, the other side of the coin is, and what we try and do is we come up with some facts that kind of uh, fence them into a particular area, given the titanium and rare earth elements and things like that. On on the tie, Uh, what I would like to see is I would like to see people say, well, given these constraints. You know what suspect fits those categories, or where should we look for a suspect to do that? Uh, currently, you know, one of the things I think is important is the Tectronics possibility, because they made CRT tubes, they had rare earth elements there, uh, that type of thing. Where the titanium comes in is not so clear with Tectronics, but uh, that's how I'd like to see. You know, there's a there's a misconception that if my father or my brother or somebody looked like Cooper, then he must be Cooper,
3: right? And uh that happens all the time so that would be my pet peeve
0: joe you want to take uh the next shot at it
3: yeah sure there i have a there's a bunch but i'll i'll just i'll throw a couple quick ones out there i think the the one that that gets to me the most would be that uh, he died in the jump and although that's a possibility i don't think it's probable and i probably believe that at the time um so that would be the big one. There's just so much evidence, not, I, I would say evidence, evidence, evidence is the right term. There's information out there that would indicate it's more likely that he survived. Uh, there's no body was found. Uh, the, you know, the rest of the bills weren't found or were, I think five copycat hijackers within seven months, they all survived. Uh, they all, most of them jumped under much worse circumstances. Um, so that, that's, that's probably the big one for me. And I, Literally in the past two weeks, Wikipedia finally changed the it was the second paragraph that said uh, all the evidence basically points to D.B. Cooper dying in the jump. And so this was on there for on Wikipedia for I don't even know how many years. But the the footnote, the, the source for that was an FBI website. So what we have is Wikipedia saying. D.B. Cooper died in the jump for proof, go to the FBI website. Well, of course, the FBI wants us to believe that he died in the jump uh, for many reasons. So I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, just that it's not a neutral comment. Uh, There's a lot of information out there that that would indicate that he survived. Uh, So that's my big one. The second one would be, and it goes along with the suspects, and that I I wish the public would, would look at some of these suspects and just say, um, and I'm, I'm specifically speaking about Rastrow and McCoy. All the all the witnesses said that Cooper was middle-aged, um, and whatever middle-aged means, it, it, it was it was somebody probably late 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, McCoy and Rastrow were both 28 at the time. They were uh, both military veterans. They were likely in good shape. They were thin. They had their hair. There's no way that these three stewardesses, Alice Hancock, Florence Schaffner, and Tina Munklow, all in their 20s. Uh, I've never seen a picture of Alice. I don't think I have. I have seen uh, Florence and Tina, and they were, they were beautiful women. And there's no way they would have mistaken a 28-year-old for a 45-year-old. Um, I wish that happened. I'd love to go back and, and be mistaken for a 28-year-old. It doesn't happen. So uh, that would be... That's that's a that's another fallacy. So I would say the the belief that he died in the jump and the the belief that he could have been 28 years old. I just it just you don't mistake a 40 year old for a 28 year old. Uh, you just don't. It doesn't happen. So that's my that's my two cents.
0: I would definitely agree with both of those. What about you, Eric?
2: I think the thing that probably is the most frustrating to me uh, is this tendency of people. To gravitate toward some sort of conspiracy of of some shape, you know, the CIA is involved or some black ops guy, you know, they know the, they know who the real Cooper is, but he knew too much. So they got to cover it up all this other kind of crap. That's just that's just sort of nonsensical rubbish. That it just seems like invariably in any kind of case where there's any kind of mystery, you know, people just can't seem to accept the fact that, you know, we just don't know. They've got to have some sort of explanation and and government's the easy thing to to pick on. It's got to be some secret government operation, what have you. I mean, the truth of the matter is, like how this guy got away was he caught them off guard. He caught them off guard. He jumped from the jet. They didn't exactly know when he jumped. They they weren't certain he actually jumped for multiple hours so the the plane actually landed in Reno, and he was just one step ahead. I mean, by the time they showed up in the general area, he was long gone. And that's just simply it. I mean, you know, the, the guy didn't have to be some black ops guy. It doesn't have to be some huge cover up. President Nixon was not involved with this thing. Uh, you know, it, it's really nothing more complicated, in my opinion. That is some guy who possessed some knowledge, possessed some skills, got jammed up somehow. Decided, you know what? I'm going to skyjack a jet and try to extort two hundred thousand dollars. And he was one or two steps ahead of the authorities, and that's it. It's as simple as that. That's a great one. That's that's yeah, very
3: very well put. Very well put.
0: So you don't like Howard Hunt as a suspect,
3: right? Howard Hunt. Yeah, exactly.
1: But <laughs> well, I I have this I have this kind of uh, thought every once in a while about Cooper that when we do catch him and uh, we start interviewing him and he says what happened he goes well you know I just I just was pissed off and I went to the hardware store and I bought this stuff and stuck it in my briefcase and uh, I figured uh, either I'm going to die or I'm going to jump out of the airplane with the parachutes and live and I didn't think much else about it and it just all worked out you know <laughs>
3: right yeah. you, you know I, know I think
1: you. it's going to be really funny if at the end of the day this was just a you know just the, 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 guy, the guy rolled the dice and won and became famous in history for it you know it's <laughs> hysterical
2: but it reminds uh, me of uh, reminds me of some of the suspects that that you know i've read about in in the fbi files i mean some of the comical crap i think i think my favorite one and i've talked about this a couple of times is the fbi files there's there's this one guy who reaches out to the fbi and he says I know that I've been under surveillance by the FBI. I know you guys think I'm D.B. Cooper and you're collecting this file and everything on me. And I demand that you turn over to me everything, all the information you've collected on me while you've investigated me as D.B. Cooper. The cool thing is that you can see all the FBI documentation between you know other agents in the FBI and they don't know who the hell this guy is. The guy actually wasn't a suspect at all. But given that he's writing to the FBI thinking that he is a suspect, he then became a suspect and they investigated the guy. So we actually brought on an investigation by virtue of insisting that he knew for damn sure that the FBI was looking into him. But I love that story because it's just so much of that kind of stuff in these files. Oh, I can can add to that.
1: Yeah, I can add to that, because we were there. He pulled out all the uh, the letters that were sent to the FBI after the fact. And it was it was the funniest thing we read, because there would be one letter that says, ah, screw you, I'm on a beach drinking margaritas, you know. And then the next one would be, I want to return the money. Please let me know where I can bring the money back to. Things like that. They went both ways. There was about a dozen letters, and they all had crazy angles to them. You know, half, about half of them were, I got away with it, ha, ha, ha. The other half were... Oh, I'm really sorry, but I needed to do it, and uh, it was for my family or something stupid like that. So uh, it was amazing how many crazies there were out there.
3: Wasn't there – there was one that somebody was watching, Perry Mason or something, in the, in the jury box?
2: Yeah. The guy looked like TV Cooper? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, oh, one, of the, one of the supporting actors on TV looked like the sketch so the, the freaking dude actually contacts the FBI and says, Hey man, there's a supporting actor on this Perry Mason episode. You want, they want to check him out. Like, I mean, some of the stuff is just ridiculous. Yeah. Wouldn't it be yeah. amazing if the guy actually was DB Cooper though? But, uh, yeah. It
3: kind of gets me in that if there's, there's a lot of good, I'd say good suspects out there. They, they at least check a lot of, of blocks. I think a lot, a lot of them Darren, And you've had quite a few on your podcast and I, I don't, I don't necessarily say if you know if my if i if I prove somebody wrong that that I'm right, it doesn't make my guy the the D b. Cooper. But I feel like if we had all shown up twenty years ago, we would have probably sat down with the FBI and at least pled our case. But you can't even get attention now for for all the research that you've done. The FBI doesn't even respond, even if you ask them to. But yet you see a guy that looks like, db cooper on a perry mason show and and they actually research it it's uh crazy so darren what do you think what's your what's your one that uh, gets you
0: the one that bothers me the most i kind of touched on it is that he hid in the plane and just walked out or that there was no db cooper at all and the flight crew made that up completely and that's why we've never caught him is because db cooper never existed those are the that's two.
1: I hadn't even think. heard that one. That's a, That's a really good one.
0: Oh, yeah. And, in, and those always come from the same people. Um, you know, we'll all be at a dinner party or something and, you know, it'll come up. Hey, I do this podcast about D.B. Cooper. And they're like, oh, yeah, I know about that. Here's what I think. I think he hit on the plane and then everyone just walked away. And then he casually walked out of the plane with the bag full of money and his bomb. Or the other one is, oh yeah, the flight crew, they did it. And it's just like, have you looked into this at all? There's no evidence to support either of those.
3: Exactly.
1: Well, that's, you know, th- this Cooper covers the entire range in 360 degrees. <laughs> that's, that's, you can find any angle you want in this, uh, in, this, in this investigation.
0: Yeah, I'm also fascinated by there seems to be a new trend in the unsolved cases world where you could just combine them all. So all of the unsolved cases they're all connected to a single thread or a single person.
3: Zodiac or Unabomber, yeah, every yeah.
0: Everybody was Cooper.
2: Right. <laughs> yeah, one guy was was one guy who did it all, this one genius of a guy. So, uh, <laughs> <know>. Cruz, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've stopped uh, commenting on, yeah, i
3: stopped commenting on those, but at least, at least it keeps his name in the, in the news, but, uh, yeah, some of those are uh, ridiculous, yes. Well, you know,
1: you got to expect that, it all comes with the territory, you know, and then, no matter how scientific, I had a whole great scientific theory about silver on the bills, right, that I went on TV about, and had scientific evidence to back it up, and I turned out I was 100% wrong, couldn't have been more wrong, you know, so, uh, Everything can turn around on you. So, you know, you got to take the good with the bad and all these things.
2: I think that, that you bring up a good point, Tom, in that, uh, I, I, you know, that's one thing I would like to see a little bit more of in the Cooper world is people that approach this thing a little bit more scientifically and are willing to cut bait when they need to on suspects and theories and things of that nature. It just seems like too often you find people that get married to a particular theory or suspect and they just cannot divorce themselves of that, you know, regardless of what the evidence shows. And, you know, obviously I've been very uh, attached to Sheridan Peterson as a suspect. I've publicly said, I, you know, I think there's 98% certainty that that he's D.B. Cooper. Now I say 98%, not 100%. And the reason why is because I'm honest. I'm like, I, I've never been able to find a silver bullet. You know, there's a couple things about the guy that, you know, that's, that sort of bother me, you know, with respect to him being Cooper. I've never been able to determine if Sheridan Peterson smoked. You know, Sheridan Peterson had mighty thin hair on the top of his head. You know, there, there are a couple of things like that. But it just seems like there's too many people getting out there that are just absolutely certain that they know who the person is. Just no doubt about it, even though the evidence speaks to something Entirely different, and all I can say is it's a good thing that people design airplanes and and uh, surgeons and things of that nature. It's a very good thing that that's not the way they approach designing airplanes and building airplanes and surgeons. Otherwise, you know, we'd have an awful lot of plane crashes and and flubbed up surgeries and things. Uh, you know, people have to rely upon the facts, like it or not. And if something, you know, the example you gave about the, the silver, Tom, if something comes out that That uh, illuminates the fact that uh, there's, you know, something's wrong here. You know, people just need to cut bait. They need to cut bait and move on and and start looking in in a different area. And it just seems, again, that too often people are unwilling to do that. And, um, you know, I mean, I've said this many times before. uh, I don't have a horse in the race. I have no horse in this race other than the truth. And that's, that's the God's honest truth. I I entered this thing years ago, looking to establish the truth period, not to put somebody forward as DB Cooper, who actually isn't DB Cooper. So
1: again, I'll reiterate what I've always said is that we do need people to champion these suspects, right? Because without a champion, the suspect will never get analyzed so let's let's analyze them and then you know if a lot of these guys like rackstraw were dismissed instantly you know they didn't take more than 20 minutes of investigation to dismiss them and that's still put out a two-hour documentary on it but uh let's let's look into it you know let's look into. It. we got more evidence now we know clearly we got the 302s backing us up now so just narrow them down quicker that's all but i do think it's a good idea to investigate all the suspects but you know it's 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 but Joe Weber being example, she will fight to her last breath that her husband was D.B. Cooper because he said so on his deathbed. And uh, she's caused more problems for the Cooper case than anyone else. So there we are.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the one thing that that people seem to forget, and I've mentioned this a couple of times before. So, you know, hearing this, this may sound familiar to some people, but um, there are a lot of people that seem to not Realize that they do not get to determine who DB Cooper was. They do not get to determine what happened. They don't get to determine any of this stuff. This stuff was decided 50 years ago by the real DB Cooper. The real DB Cooper is the guy who decided that he was going to be DB Cooper. He's the guy who decided how he got out of the area or what happened. None of us get to choose that or decide that. But a lot of people seem to forget that and somehow think that it's their job to advocate and build a story telling us all what actually happened. That's, that's, that's not an appropriate place for these people to live. Again, that stuff was decided 50 years ago by D.B. Cooper himself. And our job has to be to read the tea leaves, look at the evidence, and try to decipher what it is that D.B. Cooper himself decided to do and actually effectuated 50 years ago. That's not my job. He already decided that for me. I'm just trying to figure out what his decisions were.
0: Yeah, and I think sometimes there's unfortunately, you know, when people come in with a new suspect, you know, I think that it was, you know, Billy Bob that pulled off the hijacking and then they're just met with this avalanche of negative comments about it. And I I think that sort of damages the community. You know, like you're talking about Joe Weber. There's a group of people who are combative and confrontational about the whole thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, Darren, that um, unfortunately, you've got a few bad apples in the D.B. Cooper world that want to talk about everything but D.B. Cooper. They just basically want to attack. They want to smear. They want to uh, bring other people down. Uh, which i just I just don't understand that. I, i've I've never understood that. Um, but unfortunately, you've got a few of those people out there. and it, and I know it turns an awful lot of people off. And uh, you know, Joe himself said right here, hey, if he had talked to you know one member in particular right off the bat, he would have probably been immediately turned off and have haven't gone anywhere with it. But fortunately for him, he happened to talk to, you know, Bruce Smith, who's a very pleasant person. And, you know, this is the interesting thing about Bruce is that Bruce and I are probably as far apart in this case as two people could be. I mean, I'm much more buttoned up conservative, you know, sort of really purely trying to focus on the facts and what does that tell me and everything else, Bruce is much more, Hey, it's the black ops kind of thing. There was some government co- cover up going on here. What was the FBI really trying to accomplish here, whatever. But I have never had a single crossword between Bruce Smith and myself, and it's because we're civilized. And unfortunately, there's an awful lot of people on the forum that that aren't. Well, let me rephrase it. I want to say an awful lot. There are a few that aren't. And uh, unfortunately, that that it, it tends to jam out and crowd out a lot of people that just aren't interested in, you know, being smeared publicly. Just for the hell of it. (laughs) so. Yeah,
0: it's not awesome. How do you guys think this case will get solved? What is it going to take? I'll I'll jump in. (laughs) I've been saying this for a while
1: now, and I think there's a better chance of solving it now than 15 years ago. And the reason is somebody probably knows something. This whole thing didn't happen in a complete vacuum, just one guy operating alone. Somebody knew something. And I believe that that somebody is not going to come forward and say anything, uh, if Cooper's still alive. So we have to wait for him to die. And then that person will be motivated. If the person's still afraid of, of, uh, repercussions from the FBI, they still won't come forward. But in talking to the FBI, uh, you know, one of the agents said, well, you know, we probably wouldn't convict them anyway because you know, we don't convict 80 year old guys who are going to die in, in, uh, in, in court. So I said, well, why don't you put out a, saying anybody coming forward with information will give you immunity and he thought it was a good idea but the boss didn't so it didn't happen but if that were to happen you know if whoever knows something comes forward right now that could crack things really wide open so uh, that's how i think uh, we're going to see a big breakthrough in the case
0: yes and if you know anything please reach out to me before contacting the fbi so we can have you on the show
3: (laughs) (laughs) i've got uh in general, I agree with you, Tom, on that. The The only thing I would, would question, though, is if Cooper, if Cooper was 40 in 1971, that means he was born in 1931. Uh, he'd be a very, very old man right now. And just by probability, would, would one would say that he's not alive. But I definitely agree with that, though, in the sense of I used to think that once Cooper died, then there was no there was no crime left no one would no one would get in trouble for it um and i think the fbi went as far to say is the statute of limitations ran out on the accomplices but we're in a you know the society we live in now of of lawsuits and tax evasion and everything else I, i i wonder if if there are still trickle trickle down effects of the cooper case in that if some of that money went to a beach house or a boat or someone heard something and didn't didn't say something about it could could the IRS come after the family could the FBI come after the family could Florence Schaffner sue the estate of Sheridan Peterson or Walter Reck I don't know and I just wonder if even if somebody wanted the attention of saying, "Hey, my father was DB Cooper," I can prove it. I've got twenty-dollar bills or whatever. I I still think there would be some some concern that they'd end up in a in a in a courtroom and they'd be paying lawyer fees and innocent as can be, but still still losing money because of it. Yeah, I can't
1: I can't argue with that at all. You're probably 100% correct on that. Yes, there could be someone just going to hold back just for the aggravation, I probably would, right? If I actually had real info, I probably wouldn't do it unless it was a big carrot at the end of the stick, which there isn't. So, uh, yeah, yeah, but that's still my hope, right? I'll, I'll right. hope like everybody
3: else. <laughs> I think you're right, though. You said it right at the beginning. The first thing you said was somebody knows something, and there's got to be people out there that know. How? I mean, how do you – how do you keep this a secret? I and mean, this is not a, this is not a war crime or something. I mean, this is something that you want to tell your buddies about, or at least your wife, your, you know, his wife knew he was gone or his, his girlfriend or his kids or something. And that had to have trickled out somewhere. And uh, I, maybe, maybe we can, maybe it'll get tracked down somehow. And somebody will come forward and say, yeah, you know what he did? He mentioned that in a bar in 1982. And I didn't believe him. I wish I had. Uh, yeah. My, my thing would be, I, I, I wish the, I wish the DNA would would come out a little bit. But I, there was an article a couple of weeks ago about the FBI not even willing to look at DNA from some. Mul- it was a multiple murder case. I, I just don't have a lot of faith that the DNA is ever going to do anything unless we get hold of it. So, and that that assumes that Cooper left his DNA on the plane. But um, I, I
2: hope it gets solved. It's going to be a tough one though, you know i think uh, my opinion is that this will be solved and i think uh, science is going to solve this it's clear with science advancing as rapidly as it is that uh, it's hard to envision you know what's just around the corner in terms of scientific technology and so forth and when you consider you know things like uh you know outside of the fbi's evidence the tie and all that other kind of stuff when you consider you know the parachutes and things like that which could be out there or an attache case or whatever uh you know there, there may be a very real chance that science lends a hand in actually finding some of this stuff uh or in some other fashion identifying you know cl- closing in on who db cooper is uh so i i I think that science is gonna play a big part and I think there's a very good chance that at some point uh, eventually we're gonna be able to figure out who you know precisely who this guy was and prove it improve it I mean obviously you know there are a lot of people under suspicion, but uh, it's that proof you know that silver bullet that that just seems to uh, you know just be ever so close, but you know, <laughs> not quite there. True. Yeah, it's got to be proven.
0: What I'm most afraid of in the case being solved is that we find out who it was, but not the story. And I want to know exactly the whole thing from the time he woke up that morning uh, to jumping out of the plane, where he landed, what it was like, where he went, and and the years after that. If if we find out that it was you know Tom Franklin who did it, but with no details, I think that would be so much worse.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, maybe that's where we should leave it. Right, we should leave the discussion right there. (laughs) Don't ever solve
3: it. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, that that would would be kind of awful if we found out who it was. But he didn't tell anybody. He didn't write it down. We don't know. You know, man.
0: Yeah, then what?
3: Then
2: well, I guess, that's it, man.
1: They'll <laughs> just argue that he's not the guy. <laughs> well, that's
2: the thing. That's the thing. We got a fair number of flat earthers around here still. I, you know, you can come up with absolutely concrete information or evidence uh, impugning somebody or pointing to somebody, and and it's a, you know, it's inevitable that it's it's part of this master conspiracy. Evidence was planted, you know, that type of thing. Yeah, so. Right. Uh, but, you know, again, you know, I, I live in the real world. I know that uh, Tom and Joe live in the real world as well, uh, as, as well as Darren. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, I think we'll just let the evidence speak for itself and uh, and tell the story. And, and like I said, I think science eventually is going to step in and, and play a big part in, in ultimately solving this thing.
0: I hope so. I'd love to know exactly what happened.
2: Oh,
1: heck yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why we're all in it. Well, thanks, Darren, for having us.
0: <laughs> it was my pleasure, guys. I appreciate you all coming on, and, and Eric for uh, organizing this.
2: Well, uh, you know, like I said, my my thoughts around this were really pretty simple. Uh, a, a lot of us uh, around the United States, uh, specifically, are stuck at home, uh, spending an awful lot more time at home than we would want to be, You're watching TV, and it's all centering around the coronavirus obviously and i know that there are artists and other people comedians and so forth that are stepping up and and you know putting out content that's of some entertainment some value to help get people's minds off of what's going on right now and thinking about it i thought you know uh, why not we do the same thing let's get a few of us together who are uh, kind of plugged in and a little bit better known in the Cooper world. And, you know, let's talk about the case kind of in a BS laid back kind of uh, sense and uh, put, you know, put something out there for people to listen to, you know, a couple hours on the podcast and listen to. Uh, The whole idea being that it'll be a small respite, a small break from sort of the goings on today. And to the extent that, uh, that we're successful with that, uh, I think we can all feel proud about, uh, you know, lending something to society, you know, hel- helping out society t- in some small measure, uh, if if only for a couple of hours, uh, getting people to think about something other than the coronavirus.
0: Yeah, you can get at least 50 years entertainment out of this. <laughs>
2: there you go.
1: Still going. Hopefully the okay. coronavirus will go go less time than D.B. Cooper.
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure.
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I I know I think Bruce Bruce was supposed to be on, and I'm, I got called up from AAA, like I said earlier. But uh, I I like talking to you guys. I like talking about the case, and um, to talk to people that I have never actually, like I said earlier, Tom and, and Eric, I've never physically spoken with you. Um, Darren, you and I have met face to face. Definitely definitely appreciate it. So I hope you know. Hope there's some traction that comes out of these these podcasts.
0: Yeah, and hopefully you could make the next CooperCon.
3: Yeah, what, what's the,
2: when is that? That's, is
3: it before Thanksgiving? It's like yeah, it's the, before.
2: yeah, it's the it's, it's the weekend before Thanksgiving. And so basically it's uh, going from November, Friday, November 20th through Sunday, November 22nd. Again, that's the weekend before Thanksgiving with the main sort of presentations and that type of thing taking place on that Saturday, November 21st. It'll be in the Portland, Vancouver area. Uh, you know, if you want to obviously attend, uh, you can do it incognito. I mean, you can just be a, someone in the audience. You don't have to participate or what have you. Uh, but, you know, just 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 let me know or let us know. And, uh, you know, I'd love to have yeah. you there. And, and this is going to be, a, you know, this year is going to be very cool. It's going to be a much bigger event than the, than the first two. And uh, so I'm very much looking forward to it and it's going to be a lot of new cool stuff that'll be taking place. And again, it'll be in the Portland Vancouver area. I don't know yet precisely where it's going to take place. I'm still uh, considering a few options here, uh, but, uh, but it will be a lot of fun. It's good that we're talking
3: positive about the future, as in this will happen in November. <laughs> there'll, there'll be, there'll be travel and everything else. So I, yeah, I, I've got, I'm going to have a lot of, a lot of pent-up energy, so I'm going to catch up on some travel that I'm not able to take because of this whole mess. So, yeah, that would be good. And uh, do you, there, you have a,
0: an air date for your documentary, Eric? Or can you say that yet?
2: Sure, yeah, yeah. R- right now it's scheduled for July 5th, uh, 2020. So that's that's the date right now. Uh, obviously, if something changes with that, I'll let you know, but uh, July 5th, 2020 is, is the air date. It was originally scheduled for July 12th. That's what they were thinking. But they moved it up a week to July fifth. So
0: right on my birthday.
2: Oh, fifth of July. Well, there you go. Happy birthday in advance. So, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that's uh, that's it. It'll be a, a two hour uh, two hour special.
0: Hell yeah, we look forward to it. Anyone else have anything to promote?
1: That's me. You?
2: Nope. Nope. Nothing else at
1: the
0: moment. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on, guys. I really appreciate it. July 5th, mark it on your calendars, not just because it's my birthday, but because that's when Eric's documentary premieres on History's Greatest Mysteries on the History Channel. I'm sure you've seen us share his D.B. Cooper YouTube videos on our social media pages, too. Don't forget to visit dbcooperhijack.com and follow our anonymous friend on Twitter at DWNO11. Delta, Whiskey, November, Oscar, November, Echo, then the number one. Very confusing Twitter handle. But great Twitter page to follow. I follow it. Thank you to Eric Uless for organizing this. Thank you to Tom K and Anonymous for spending a Saturday on the phone with me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for honoring promises I made for him without his knowledge. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to the Cooper Vortex.